Welcome back to Hugs from Heaven for Sister Warriors, a podcast where through stories, interviews, and reviews of the literature, we talk about our struggles and explore ways we can reclaim the power of our feminine identity and sexuality as breast cancer, sister warriors, or as breast implant illness, sister warriors. Hopefully, through this podcast, you will feel many hugs from heaven so that you can contemplate all the information with discernment and develop your own action steps that will restore your physical and emotional health. On this episode of Hugs from Heaven, I'm super excited to be able to interview Dr. Craigie my plastic surgeon from the Center for Natural Breast Reconstruction, along with one of his physician assistants, Audrey, to discuss and provide information for women on all of the muscle sparing autologous flap reconstruction options that are available by a very small percentage of the total plastic surgeons that are out there. I also discuss the new resensation clinical trial that is occurring that restores nerve sensation for women after a mastectomy if they choose an autologous flap reconstruction option. So I hope you will find this helpful. Hello, Dr. Craigie. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast to help um, educate and support women about all their reconstructive options that they have. Um, I first want to thank you for saving my life, literally, um, and everything you've done for me to help me restore my health and my sense of feminine identity. And so thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. And I'm sure I'm going to be popping in and saying lots of things as we talk today um, about that. So thank you. And Audrey, I want to thank you so much for being my right-hand woman through this whole ordeal and even with the complication from my SGAP and just the support that you provided and everyone provided there, always being there immediately when I needed something, even though I lived out of state, that meant the world to me. And it made me feel like I was not in this journey alone. So it meant so much. It was a pleasure working with you. Well, and and I'm going to see you guys next week. I just realized I remembered that. I saw that. (laughs) So that'll be great. And Gail, thank you as well. You've been, you were the first face of the center and, you know, interacting with me and answering all my questions and always being there as well. So thank you all um, for how much you've been so supportive of my journey through this um, and my process. Um, So I wanted to start uh, today, Dr. Craigie, and anybody that wants to pop in is um, just talking about one of the things I've noticed on being on the different breast cancer and breast reconstruction websites is that a lot of women seem to be unaware of all of their breast reconstruction options. And I know that was the case for me 
And I know I've talked about my journey on um, other podcasts and what happened in my case of not being informed of um, all the Ottawa's flat reconstruction options. In fact, the opposite being told I didn't have any other options because I was uh, didn't have enough body fat tissue. But um, so so that's why I really wanted you guys on um, was to talk about that and really kind of help women know um, what are the different options and why might they choose one over the other and what are some things that they should really be paying attention to when they're looking for a surgeon for breast reconstruction? Sure, Helene, that's that's a great question. And, and before I get started answering, I want to thank you for having us as well. You've been a wonderful patient and it's, uh, it's always uh, the, our best learning experiences come from our patients. And so you, you've been a great patient and we're glad that you're feeling well and thank you for having me. Um, you know, you know, the, the options, the most important thing that the doctors can tell someone who's trying to make the decision of what to do with breast reconstruction when they're in that scenario is the most important thing is that they know their options. Um, you know, the, the, the world of medicine is changing. Uh, there seems to be more, uh, used to be maybe all the options could have been available to a patient just about anywhere. But as procedures have become more specialized, uh, people are also uh, uh, requiring, required to you know, sometimes uh, go other places where they specialize in certain things. But I think part of that is part or that leads to part of the problem uh, when someone is presented with the options. If the doctors who maybe don't perform a certain procedure, um, when they're talking to the patient, they, they may not um, feel that that is uh, an option or they may, may neglect to to discuss all those uh, options with the patient, maybe maybe feeling that perhaps. Uh, they don't desire to, to travel or go somewhere where the option would be available. But, um, you know, we feel, we feel very strongly that uh, knowing what your options are before having your mastectomy, if, if you have to do that, is, is very, very important. That is, that is so true. And um, I talked about that with, you know, when you're facing this breast cancer diagnosis and you're, you know, fighting for your life and, you know, you're looking into options for treatment for that. Um, I mean, if for me, I, I, I just assumed what I was being told was the full story of what my reconstructive options were. Um, and so if a woman is not told all their reconstructive options, you know, when they're, when they're facing this, what would be some things that you would suggest to a woman, I mean, obviously they're usually really struggling with just accepting and dealing with their breast cancer diagnosis. But if if they really don't know and they're not being told, um, is there anything you would suggest to them of maybe certain key questions they might ask that could help them to, you know, help them realize that, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm not getting the full story here. Maybe I should really look into this and find out if there are other options out there? Sure. I think it can be a difficult thing to 
to get your mind around when you're going through this because uh, things like this happen all of a sudden and it's never a convenient time and it's never something that you necessarily want to spend a lot of time researching. But uh, if a patient is, is in that situation and uh, I would recommend uh, to, to think about what the doctors one, we know that implant breast reconstruction is the most common way breast reconstruction is performed. There are different reasons for that. One is uh, due to what is available, the techniques available. Also, it um, requires less recovery. But when you look at uh, the uh, possible complications or you look at, if you look at the FDA website that you pointed me to, the seven important things to, to think about and to know before having implant reconstruction, that would automatically clue you into the fact that, yes, uh, an implant is not living tissue. And so no matter what, there are going to be potential uh, downfalls because of that. It essentially means that it's not a permanent result because it's not living tissue. And so if you think about going through this, and then the next question would be, well, isn't there something that could be available that is a permanent result? A woman going through this wants to be back to her normal self when this is all over. And uh, they may uh, obviously not want to be thinking about, well, I've had all this surgery, but it's not going to last. And so that would immediately bring you to the alternatives of, well, you can use your own tissue, but uh, one of the options might be giving up an important muscle. Well, giving up an important muscle doesn't sound like a great option uh, for, for women when they're going through this. If they have to give up their breast, why uh, they, their first response may be, well, I don't want to give up an important muscle. And so then that would bring to the next question, is there another way that I can get a permanent result without using an implant, without giving up my muscles. And so then that brings us into a whole, whole realm of options and a whole really specialty of plastic surgery, uh, and that's using natural tissue. And so it is a complex uh, process. This, the, the procedures are, are detailed and, um, you know, advanced type uh, training required, but the overall concept is, is, is straightforward in, in that, yes, all of the doctors involved in getting someone through breast cancer want them to recover and they, we want to get them back to uh, a normal lifestyle and, and, uh, and be able to move on. So you mentioned, um, you know, that's, those are great, great points for a woman to think about to help her really question and want to know um, of other options so, you, so, let, so let's talk about that. This is an area I obviously didn't know anything about until I learned about you guys. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the history of autologous flap reconstructed techniques? And um, like, I believe it started with DIEP. Is that correct? And then how the others were developed and how long they've been available. And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but could you give a ballpark guess of how many plastic surgeons, I mean, not number wise, but maybe percentage wise mm -hmm. of all the plastic surgeons out there that, that would be able to do these other, um, flap reconstruction. Sure. I yeah, can, I certainly can give you the info that I have. It may not be the most up-to-date statistics, but 
the history of what we call natural breast reconstruction or using natural tissue without giving up muscles is probably the best place to start. And um, this was in the early 1990s when plastic surgeons were thinking about better options for women. In other words, not having to use muscles, not having to use implants because of the same reasons that, that we just mentioned. Um, and so actually, if you go back to around 1995 or 94, Dr. Robert Allen was the first one to report using just the skin and fatty tissue without using the muscles of the lower tummy uh, for breast reconstruction. There are different ways to use the lower tummy, but um, that was a, and it is a popular way to, to do breast reconstruction because usually that, that part of the body is designed to have extra tissue. Uh, women go through pregnancy. And so uh, uh, taking the lower tummy was thought to be, well, if we can turn something in a negative into a positive by doing a tummy tuck and get rid of unwanted tissue and put it to use without sacrificing muscles, then that would be a much better obvious choice. It doesn't take much to to put two and two together and see that's a better option for for anyone in that position. So uh, it was actually the super, the SIEA, which is um, uh, a, a term for the superficial inferior epigastric artery, a, a long, long description for basically using the skin and fat of the tummy uh, for breast reconstruction, but it requires what we call microsurgery. And so doctors that have skills in uh, basically taking tissue and reconnecting the blood supply were the first ones to do this. Dr. Robert Allen did, and I think it was 1994. It was actually the SIEA and not the DIEP, but ah. the, the DIEP soon followed. Um, and so from there on, those were the two options for using the lower tummy without sacrificing the muscle. And so uh, immediately when that was available, obviously, you know, it takes, uh, you know, it takes a, a unique skill of someone who's going to pioneer something like this uh, that hasn't been done. You don't have anyone to tell you, oh, well, this is how I've done it. These are my results. But even in the early days, the it happened to be, uh, timing happened to be very uh, coincidental with the, uh, uh, of the internet and all of this information that's now available to people. And so therefore information can be spread rapidly. Whereas before the internet, this info really was, uh, it, was it wasn't medical information. You're really relying on doctors telling you. And so mm -hmm. it takes a while for doctors uh, to publish their results, those mm -hmm. results to be circulated and to be taken in and then to be, you know, implemented in their, in their practice or for a doctor to come to a conclusion. But immediately when the, the information got out and people realized, well, I can have a permanent result. I don't have to give up my back muscle or my tummy muscle because there were the most common way to do breast reconstruction was, the tram flap, which uh, uh, takes the abdominal wall muscle, and it's an important muscle. So this, the, the, that spread through the Internet, uh, unbelievably, almost mm -hmm. overnight. And so, wow. So, and, you know, it's, and it, it didn't require a lot of doctors were like, well, I don't know about that uh, because uh, it sounds like, you know, maybe there needs to be more studies. But when you look at 
basically what had already been done, which was using the lower tummy. If you can do that without taking the muscles, no one's going to sign up for that uh, to be a control. In other words, would you rather have it without your muscle taken or mm-hmm. with, you know, I would right. keep my muscle. And so, uh, so after that, that information spread from patient to patient. And so then uh, the Dr. Allen and the doctors who were microsurgeons uh, began to go to meetings and uh, to publish scientific publications uh, and to uh, recruit other uh, doctors who were interested in learning these techniques. And so the uh, um, specialty really took off overnight. uh, And it was really uh, due to the efforts of word of mouth and uh, women spreading the word over the internet from person to person and people like yourself who, who are out there getting great information and sharing what they're learning with people who need help, uh, who, who, who are in that same situation. Wow. That's a great history of how <clears throat> these um, techniques got developed. Can you talk a little bit about um, the different types of, techniques besides um, DIEP? Because I know that's something I've noticed on these different groups I'm on, that that seems to be the one that all the women know about and talk about. But there seems to be, even in, even if they know about that option, it seems like a lot of the other options a lot of women don't know about. And so would you mind talking at least a little bit about the different types and why as a surgeon, you might recommend one over the other? Yeah, sure. Um, it, the idea is that in the end, what we need to rebuild the breast is, is fatty tissue. Uh, your own fat is the best replacement for your natural breast because the breast is mostly fatty tissue. Um, in order to have your own fat and have it become a breast uh, and have a natural shape, then it has to be transferred from one area of the body to the breast. And so that requires microsurgery. And after the DIEP, after the SIEA, certainly there are, there are lots of women who those are not options. Those maybe they've had a tummy tuck. Maybe they have, um, don't have a lot of tummy tissue. Maybe, uh, they have another area of the body uh, that they can use. And so, Quickly, uh, the, the people who were doing DIEPs um, started to think, well, we can apply this to other parts of the body. Certainly, people come in all shapes and sizes, and um, with the concepts in plastic surgery that, that, um, that are old and well-established, we know that we can take tissue from certain areas of the body as long as we have the blood vessels that we need. And so once we started looking at you know, different parts of the body, then then all of a sudden, well, uh, the, it, more options become available. So uh, the next uh, obvious option was using the buttock tissue because uh, in some people they have extra buttock tissue. And so the S-gap and the I-gap uh, were, were popularized. Uh, and so then after a certain, uh, after a while, you realize, well, there's other uh, options and variations on uh, uh, people's body, and sometimes women will have extra fatty tissue not in the butt, maybe it is in the thighs. And so, the next areas that evolved were using the, the, the upper thigh, 
uh, and primarily uh, the PAP flap, which is uh, also pioneered by Dr. Allen. Then that takes the upper fatty tissue, basically the region below the buttock uh, and the upper thigh. And so for some people, that's, that's an excellent option because they can have an incision there that's hidden in the crease. Um, depending on someone's shape, that may be the best option. Uh, as an example, though, that you know, one, one problem that I see with that sometimes is our, our healing issues. If there are healing problems, it's in an area of the body that is difficult to manage, but not impossible. So, you know, we look at each person and say, well, what do we need to achieve with the breast size? And then, you know, where can we get it from? We can get the size we need from the thigh and it's not a large flat then. So we can say, oh, that that would be a good option or not. Um, the pap and then another option is the outside of the thigh so basically anywhere where there are blood vessels that are going into fat tissue we can potentially use as uh, donor tissue for for breast reconstruction and so it depends on how stretchy someone is how much fat they have in that area of the body uh, unfortunately uh, with this type of surgery we're always balancing getting a nice result but not causing a problem somewhere else. And so the first hurdle with that is not taking muscles. The next hurdle in that is aesthetics and not creating a, a problem in one area of the body that is a, uh, you know, is a deformity or something that inter interferes with quality of life. And so having options is, is very, very important to making the most of, of, of that balance. And so um, the upper thigh, the upper buttock, and the tummy, usually with those options, uh, almost anyone uh, can have a natural tissue breast reconstruction as long as they're willing to work within the, the limitations of how much tissue they have. So that's a good point, Dr. Craigie, because that is what <clears throat> I believe a lot of women who, you know, are told like I was that I didn't have enough body fat to have that to only fat, you know, flap reconstruction for both breasts. Um, I know for myself, um, you, 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 did the SCAP with me, um, but there are some women that, is it, are there cases where they don't even have enough there? And so there might have to be more than one place that the tissue is taken from, um, so that, you know, or is that not something that is done, con um, you know, on a... No. Not no, sure. That, that's exactly right. Sometimes uh, maybe the buttock, there's not enough tissue. And, and so if you take enough to make a breast acceptable size, then you know, there's not a left, not any left over to um, preserve that area of the body. Uh, sometimes when uh, the tummy is, is used, we want the tummy result, uh, the scar to be like a tummy tuck and not be too visible and having an, an aesthetic position. Uh, if you're taking a whole lot of tissue up and down, in other words, from where the belly button is down uh, to the lower part of the tummy, sometimes getting that closed, you, you may get the tissue that you need, but now you, you have a very difficult uh, incision to heal because it's so tight. One way to, um, to avoid that has been taking tissue that goes beyond what the territory of a blood vessel will keep healthy. And so when that happens, you have to make sure that that 
tissue that you're taking has a blood supply that can nourish it and allow it to heal. And so that may require taking two sets of blood vessels. We call that the pedicle. And so particularly in the tummy, as an example, in order to not have to take so much up and down, maybe taking more toward the side. So a longer flap can get more tissue, but it needs to have the extra blood supply so that the closure is better. Uh, you get enough tissue, but in order to make the, the new breast you, to pr you know, preserve the blood supply, you either need to you, you, typically one way to do that would be to take two vessels from two different areas. Both of those blood vessels can nourish all of that tissue. And so that's something we call an angiosome. So we know we've studied as plastic surgeons how the body nourishes different areas. And so the blood vessels are the anatomy is such that they overlap. So that if there's if you think about someone who has an injury or a surgery and one you know, blood vessel, the blood supply from one direction is eliminated, the body is designed to to uh, overlap and the other blood supply from a different direction kicks in. And so one way to extend the amount of tissue that you can use is to have two sets of blood vessels. And so, yes, that's a scenario where uh, maybe two areas of the body are used. In other words, two separate pedicles and the fat put together or one area of the body extending to the next connected in the, in the middle, but two sets of blood vessels on either end. So connecting two micro vascular connections uh, will allow all the tissue to be uh, healthy. Now, once you go down that path, though, it gets more and more technically demanding. Uh, and so you have more variables. Anytime we have to separate the tissue from the body and divide its blood vessels, we have to make sure that we're able to reconnect those uh, and reestablish the blood supply. So the tinier the vessels and the more of them you have to connect, the more chance for potential problems and it becomes more tedious and the surgery uh, is, is more difficult. But that's mainly what the plastic surgeons are considering when they're formulating you know, options to tell people uh, to give to, to patients as an option. Now, Dr. Craigie, every, what you just explained right there, is that what we hear <clears throat> often women um, when we're, they're talking about their con consults with different doctors, um, and they, I think they use the term flat survival. Um, and what you were explaining is those are the factors that would um, help with good flap survival. And um, that, I think, is another reason that a lot of women, they hear, you know, horror stories about that, um, you know, about the flap survival and and not taking in that. So can you talk a little bit to that? Sure. Um, yeah, the, the biggest hurdle in this type of breast reconstruction, because we're not just dragging it and tunneling it, but we're actually severing it from its blood supply and then reconnecting uh, that blood supply. If that step doesn't, uh, if that's not successful, then the tissue will, none of it will survive. And so, you know, that's an important thing to look at. Uh, the success rate of doing that should be very high. Unfortunately, it's not 100%. And so even if it's a 99% success rate, that means you know, on occasion that there will be a time, uh, you know, it, it won't, you know, you'll, you'll have what we call a failure. 
And so failure with this type of surgery is something that you know right up front. It's not something that could occur a year later. It's something that occurs at the time of the surgery or a few days afterwards, usually within the first three days if it's going to happen. And so that step has to be successful. And so if uh, a woman goes through that and they have that procedure, well, they've given up that tissue and it didn't live. And so they have to have a plan B. And so anytime a doctor has a plan A and they go to surgery, there's also a plan B. Uh, and so before going to surgery, a patient obviously would, would need to know that information. So number one, what are your statistics? What had, uh, what's your success rate in the past? So that they know going in what their chances are, but also know that they know what the possible outcomes are. And if it doesn't work, then what is plan B? And so it just depends on the situation. Uh, we have to consider the, 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 the risk no matter what. And so, yeah, it is a devastating thing. If you go through that and you give up your own tissue, you've already uh, given up your breast. And, and so unfortunately that does happen. Uh, we're always trying to take that success rate higher and higher, uh, closer to 100%. Uh, but it should be somewhere around 99% in, in people who, uh, places that are experienced and do a lot of this. Okay, so that's a really good statistic for women to remember that and to know when they're talking to doctors um, to ask about what is their, what is the, what's the flap survival rate Correct. that they have experienced. I would assume that the more surgeries a doctor has done in this, I'm assuming they would perfect their skills and usually have a higher flap success rate. Um, is there anything else that you think contributes to why doc some doctors have a higher flap success rate? And I don't think a lot of women even probably know to ask. Yeah, yeah I think it's a very important question to ask. And it's also very important that uh, the surgeon and doctor be very transparent with what their experience is. Obviously, someone uh, starting out, if they have a flap uh, loss early on, it has a huge impact in their percent of success. And so um, the questions to, to ask are, well, yes, how long have you been doing it or how many have you have been, uh, how many have you done is very important, but even more important because many uh, surgeons early in their career are, are excellent. And, and, and so, but it, you need to ask, well, who trained you to do it and what is your background? because this type of surgery is a lot different than many other types of, of plastic surgery in that it's something that you need to be taught in your training to do. It's not very uh, common that people are able to teach themselves. In other words, the, the, you know, there's, no, there's no margin for, for error. Um, the, the best way to learn is by someone else's experience and learning from someone else's mistakes, ideally, uh, and particularly when mm -hmm. taking care of patients. So I would say the important question is if someone's offering you this type of breast reconstruction is what's your background? Um, uh, how did you learn about it? What is your training? And then, you know, how many of these have you done in your success rate? And so a doctor should be very transparent with how many they have done uh, and what their success rate is. Uh, and should be very willing to to discuss that with you. When you talk about success of an implant versus using your own tissue, it's a totally different thing because the success rate of implant breast reconstruction is measured 
over time because those can fail later. Whereas with your own tissue, once you get through that process, it's a permanent thing. It's not, not the, the risk of it failing uh, is, is essentially zero. Um, however, you know, in the uh, very early on, uh, that's, that step has to be successful. So let's talk then about complications, because this is another <clears throat> um, um, topic that I've noticed. Uh, some women have reported that they were really scared to death because of what plastic surgeons told them, like they would never recommend that their patient to have any of the autologous flap reconstructions. They wouldn't recommend their daughter, their wife, anyone. Um, and, you know, to me, that's ludicrous because, as you know, I've experienced three <laughs> now. This is my third reconstruction from the silicone implant, <clears throat> my severe reaction and saline because I was still at that point even with my reactions and telling them I knew it was from the implants. I wasn't told about, you know, I had another option because the plastic surgeon couldn't do it and he didn't refer me out. Um, so then, you know, from my own determination, I found you guys – I've had all three, and one, two of the things that I, I want to provide information from, not from me, from you, you're the expert as a doctor and a surgeon, um, is that, well, I can talk about my personal experience. As far as the pain, I've heard some women talk about that too, being really afraid of the pain and how, you know, before they have it and how they're going to handle it and all of that. I can honestly tell you, and I think I've told you this before, that my pain after my, even just my expander, you know, um, in expanders that were put in after my mastectomy and the, the recovering from that was way more painful than recovering from my SCAP procedure. Uh, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm not the norm, but uh, I know that having those hard um, expander things in my chest, in addition to, you know, it was just horrifically difficult um, to recover from that um, and how it limited me. So pain-wise, I can speak to, but as far as complications, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, other than the flap not surviving. Sure. What are some other complications? I mean, I mean, I had one, so we can talk about that. Well, but. yeah, I think we talked about the flap not surviving, and you and you mentioned pain, and you mentioned expanders. A, a lot of the pain associated with breast reconstruction, certainly not all of it, but the pain tends to be worse when muscles are uh, compromised or used in a way maybe. Um, you know, uh, when they have to be manipulated or stretched or divided. And so, you know, taking something hard and placing it under a muscle and then stretching it is going to be more painful uh, than, say, placing something on top of the muscle that is not stretching it. Um, taking the, the fatty tissue from the lower tummy like a tummy tuck um, and uh, not dividing the muscles or pulling on them or tethering them or toning them up um, uh, is going to be, in general, not always less painful than, than the alternative. So taking the muscles and, and, and avoiding that is uh, part of making the pain less, but doesn't make it zero. Um, 
other complications uh, from breast reconstruction have to do with all the healing that, that has to occur. So you have to take from one area of the body and you have to then make that into a breast. And so there are incisions uh, in different areas of the body. And so as when you do the surgery, you place demands on the, that healing. So whether it's tightness from the donor area or um, retraction on the breast skin while you're doing the surgery, all these things can uh, place hurdles to the healing process. And so the most common uh, complication that, that people have with breast reconstruction of that nature uh, are healing problems. And so those things generally, if you haven't had to give up your muscle, are things that may complicate recovery, but don't don't result in maybe a permanent problem that can't be improved upon. If you've given up your muscle, the tummy wall, and you have a hernia, and that has to be fixed with synthetic mesh, uh, and then later in life that falls apart or comes undone or gets infected, you know that that's you know, a, a bad complication that that can impact your quality of life moving forward. So the most common complications with breast reconstruction where we're preserving the muscles are those healing issues. Uh, and so that can be stressful and it can be a problem, but uh, not not a total, you can still have a, a nice result. It just may require some work to get those, to improve those, those areas that have healed with difficulty. Um, the, I think that's really important for women to know that, <clears throat> Dr. Craigie, because I think maybe there's a, a misconception out there that what's more common is flat mm -hmm. failure. And if I'm understanding you right, you're saying no. What's more common is just complications from the wound healing, like what Absolutely. I experienced. That's correct. Absolutely. Um, you know, everything that, that is done during the surgery when we're doing this type of thing is uh, to set the stage for that flap to be successful. And so uh, we're choosing how much to take and how much to move, where to make incisions. But the priority is we know we want that uh, blood, uh, we want the flap transfer to be successful. We want the blood vessels that we connect uh, to stay open so the body can heal. And so, um, whereas, say, compared to a tummy tuck, it's all about where you put the incision and how you make the incision because all you have to do is remove excess tissue. So you have a little more freedom of where uh, you, you make your incision. Whereas with breast reconstruction, we have to include blood vessels, we have to preserve muscles, uh, and then we have to make that transfer successful. So uh, there are times when some scenarios, people will be at a little more high chance of a healing problem. But again, those things are done in a way so that if they do happen, it may require some work, but in the end, things should still be a permanent natural result. Uh, it just may require uh, extra work uh, or an extra step. And um, it's important for anyone going through this to, to really ha have understanding that no matter how you plan it, it's uh, not going to be a one surgery and everything is done. Certainly, we try to do that under certain circumstances. But we know we want the, it to be successful in the long term. And so that almost always means it's done in, in a step process. It may be two steps. Um, uh, and if there's a problem, well, that may mean, well, we may need to do uh, another step, depending on how someone, uh, if they're satisfied with their outcome uh, and, and, and how things turned out. And so that's what I hope 
women will, uh, another thing that women will take away from this, and I'm fine to use my example, uh, my case as an example, um, that, you know, I did, I had the SCAP and, and also I live out of state (laughs) seven and a half hours away from you. So having, having, you know, a complication made it even more complicated, um, you know, having to find a, a wound care center here, um, you know, that could work. Uh, with me with that, as far as healing that with a wound vac machine and everything. But, um, you know, and so I can still attest to the fact of what you just said, though, that even though I experienced that, I would still, I, I still am achieving the results that I want. And, and I think that's really important because especially with the right plastic surgeon and, you have always listened to me and um, really listened to me. And when I was talking to you about, you know, what I thought about my body and I know my, the former plastic surgeon who didn't even tell me what my options were, he didn't, he would, he would poo poo, you know, things that I was telling him. And so I think that's also another great point. Um, Even in selecting a plastic surgeon, I know from my experience, I would say that's really important that the plastic surgeon is really um, very supportive of what you're expressing and can it can, makes you believe that you can achieve a result that you will be happy with. Is that fair to say, or is that like too long? No, no, I think it's, it's very, very fair to say. I think the way we look at it is we know that what you're going through is, is something that is, is uh, you're not an expert. It's just happened to you. And so, you know, as a plastic surgeon, we have training and we treat people who are going through something similar. But each person's situation is different. Uh, each person's uh, desires as far as what their outcome is going to be is different and their expectation of what the process is like. And so we want to understand what someone's expectations are. We want to know what they desire as far as the results. And if you don't listen to what your patients are saying, uh, then you're not going to understand that. And then you end up with an end result in someone who's, who's not happy, uh, even when everything goes uh, perfect or, or everything goes as you desire. Sometimes even then people are not happy. So we, we, we feel like everything should be geared toward listening to the patient and, and uh, tailoring our options to, to what is best for them. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, being a doctor is a very humbling process. And we know that, you know, we, we have to take care of people. Things don't always go uh, exactly the way we, we want them to. But we never stop trying to make things uh, turn out that way. And so it's a process. And, and you're right on. You, know, you really uh, need to feel like someone's listening to you because you're going you're starting out on a journey that is, is quite involved. Uh, and it impacts your quality of life in the end. It absolutely does. And it totally impacts your sense of feminine identity as a woman. Um, it's just so highly correlated. And in addition to just psychologically and emotionally, your sense of who you are as a woman, which is why I started my podcast, the health um, complications also equally. And to me, I'm holistic, I believe you know, our physical health and our emotional health are directly connected. And so if a woman is 
like I was severely struggling from breast implant illness because of my high allergy to silicone, um, you know, their health is so failing, like, you know, whatever their symptoms are. I mean, I know for me, it was the first thing that was noticeable was the de severe decreased lung function and trying to get pulmonologists to figure out what was going on. Um, and my foggy brain and not being able to remember words and not being able to speak clearly, not being able to focus. Um, my neuropathy, I got extreme neuropathy. I couldn't hold things. I was dropping things. I remember even constantly hunting for answers and driving to Cleveland Clinic to get answers and get evaluated by specialists. And I could, I almost fell over trying to walk. And my symptoms were just getting worse and worse and worse to the point where um, a pulmonologist, my pulmonologist <clears throat> got really um, pushy with me and wanting me to get on a daily autoimmune drug um, because he was afraid I was going to lose more lung function. I was at like 60% lung function. And I just said, no, um, I'm triple negative breast cancer. You know, no, there's got to be another option. And that's kind of what pushed me over the edge to start researching and finding out that there was this thing about breast implant illness and women who had severe reactions to it. Um, and then finding out about the test, this uh, lymphocyte response assay delayed allergy test that's been developed um, by, I think it's Elsa, the company that does the Elsa biotech. I forgot the name of their company, but um, <clears throat> that, that I found out from doing my research and looking and finding out, and this was really coming from the, the women in breast augmentation community that were, that were, you know, had, were suffering from this and, and f reporting on this test. Um, and, you know, having that done and it confirming <laughs> this wasn't in my head. <laughs> you know, it was what I kept saying from the very beginning, you know, when my gut told me implants weren't a good option and I didn't want them, but I only went with it because I didn't know I had other options. And then even when I was having problems and not being told, I knew it, it was coming from that. So when I had, the, when I got the results of that, it confirmed that's exactly what's happening. And so I mean, I had an autoimmune disease, which I had disclosed to my plastic surgeon, you know, before and when we were discussing reconstructive options. And I mean, even in the fine print of the implants, uh, you know, packaging, even back then, that was 2015, you know, it, I didn't know then, but it even may, it mentioned that women who had autoimmune diseases were often more likely to be ones that might have some kind of side effect. Um, and so, so this whole area, as you know, it wasn't even really, I mean, I, the history of that is, you know, not what the focus of this is on, but the fact that it's very recently started to get attention, um, in addition to the, you know, the rare cancer from the textured implants, but it's recently started to get attention. And I believe the FDA just came out with even a recommendation. It's not a requirement, mm -hmm. right? It's a recommendation, right? For plastic surgeons to have this checklist. And one of the things that should be on there is about, you know, the systematic, I think they call it systematic. Um, yeah, the systemic side, side effects, effects I the term they possibility. Uh, it's a foreign, foreign body. Um, 
you know, all you know, the, the FDA's checklist really makes it clear to someone who's considering the implants that you 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 understand that it is a foreign body, number one, and number two, it's not permanent. And some people may react to it better than others, but clearly there are there, there are different there are so many variations in the human body and uh, you know, some people and allergies what people react to I mean silicone is very reactive and so naturally some people and we see it in the clinical results uh, some people who, who have implants that and they do great and their body accepts them with with very little scarring and so on and so on and then someone else with no apparent difference uh, whose body totally rejects them and they have problem problem after problem and so when you see that it becomes clear that if someone is also having other types of complaints that there's no explanation for but they're inflammatory in nature in other words it's uh, it's, it's it sounds similar to you know the body is reacting uh, uh, in you know, the way as if they're allergic to it or an inflammatory response, then you, it's logical that you would think, well, maybe it's the foreign body in, inside me uh, uh, that could be uh, doing that in some way. Uh, and so it hasn't been totally uh, figured out yet, uh, but I think uh, it certainly is getting recognized now. And, uh, and again, you have to listen and think when people are having problems. And so, uh, yeah, yet to we'll, we'll learn more in the future, and I'm looking forward to uh, to learning more myself. Yeah, I, I um, recently um, stumbled upon um, the YouTube video um, that yeah. I, I think I sent it to your center, um, and I'll tell you, Dr. Craigie, I was like, "See, <laughs> I knew I wasn't crazy <laughs> when I heard." When I heard this very, I mean, I didn't know him, but he's supposedly a star mm -hmm. pulmonologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and his, his area is doing lung transplants, and um, he had been sent patients from, um, I believe, this the plastic surgeon that was interviewing him, who does a lot of explants, and I think some other ones, um, because of these women with, with these severe lung um, problems and these plastic surgeons, you know, not being able to find answers. And so from the, from what he does and did was able to uh, um, definitively diagnose it. And I know that I don't remember the medical term, but the non, you know, the layman's term would mm -hmm. be silicone lung toxicity. Um, and, and then in that interview, he mentioned um, it's not just from implants that it's from any medical device. It can be, right? I'm not, not everybody, but it can be from any medical device um, with silicone. And so I would think this might be something that um, would be important as far as medical history goes, as you know, mm -hmm. um, as far as trying to determine this. Um, because my father was a very healthy man um, his whole life until he got stints put in his heart. And I didn't know this until the pulmonologist said this in the interview that this stints are from silicone. And then ever since that happened, he started losing lung function, was misdiagnosed with COPD and was asthma and COPD. And then I, I don't know how long that went on until 14 months before he died, 
they diagnosed him with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and they didn't know why he wasn't a, you know, they had no explanation for it. So it really hit me when I heard that. Right. And then here I was someone same problem. I mean, this was my number one. I mean, I had other symptoms too, but the lung problem was like my biggest problem that doctors were actually were concerned about, but just didn't know what, why, you know, what was going on, mm. except to tell me I had asthma, which, which I said, <laughs> well, asthma is an allergy. <laughs> that means I'm allergic to something. I've got to find out what I'm allergic to. Um, and I was just told, literally, I was just told that, well, sometimes we just don't know. And I wasn't going to accept that <laughs> um, as an answer. So, so I, this is obviously something dear to my heart um, that women who've gone through this, not only if they're not told about all their options, but then they're literally having to fight for their life um, because they're, mm -hmm. they know their health is deteriorating rapidly and they, they want to find healing. And then to be told, well, you're, you're a breast cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. You had chemo, just deal with it. Those are, you know, you have to learn to live like that. Those are side effects from chemo. And I, and I knew it wasn't because I, it, it didn't pop up, you know, then it popped up after everything else. Um, so one of my passion areas that I want to find answers to, and I'm willing to try to help in this initiative is, and I wanted to ask you from a science perspective, so this ELSA test, uh, I mean, ELISA test, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying it right. Um, that is the lymphocyte response assay, which apparently, from what I read, is the gold standard in determining delayed allergy testing. And when I mentioned it to my local immunologist allergy doctor, she'd never heard of it. And, but, and she said, well, delayed allergies, I'm not a big believer in. But when she looked at this one, she's like, well, no, that is solid um, because of this, whatever it is whatever that means, mm -hmm. <laughs> the lymphocyte response assay delayed allergy testing, like she acknowledged that the science behind that was solid. So, um, you know, I, I was like, well, why isn't this something then that is getting out there um, to help? Because, and one, and then two, if it's a delayed allergy test, I'm assuming from a layman's perspective that it would be something you couldn't use it before mm. you were exposed to the allergy right. because it wouldn't detect it. Right. So it's not like you could just preventatively say all women who are going to have this need to take this test because if they haven't been exposed to silicone, it wouldn't come right. back, you know, that they have an allergy to it. Um, but it could be done after the fact. Sure. Like if a woman's having symptoms, I mean, you know, like this is where I'm thinking, is it, do you think it's just a lack of information that there's a test out there that could help doctors when they don't know what's going on? I mean, not just for breast implant illness, but any, you know, foreign body. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's very interesting. It's certainly something that, that I look forward to learning more about. And it's, it's you know, the, the testing is, is out, out of my, my realm, but, you know, I think, I think that uh, it's probably very well established uh, and it's very useful information. Um, like you said, what we need, what we would need up front would be would be nice to have is can you do a test to say well are you one of these people that are, are going to have problems and you know we don't have that much information right. 
because yeah, there are a wide range of symptoms. Some of them may be related to, some may not. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, for the majority of people who have implants, they're not. It's not a problem. And so, finding the people and diagnosing it, and find and studying why it happened and in the particulars is important. Um, but certainly, having important tests to uh, to zero in on what's going on with the body systemically is is, is very helpful uh, and important. But if you're at the at that point and you're having all these symptoms, the test is helpful. But you probably could come to the conclusion of what to do uh, if you're thinking, well, there are implants there, there's a foreign body, someone's having these problems. Okay, what can we do about it? And and, and well, can we get let's take out the implants? Uh, and so. If you feel that you have an alternative after taking out the implants, someone's more likely to get, you know, to suggest that if there are no alternatives, uh, in other words, the surgeon doesn't know the procedures that can be done or they don't offer it or it's been or they've had cosmetic uh, breast augmentation uh, and the implants are so large that over time that they have flattened the breast and there's no breast tissue there. Maybe there aren't good options. And I think that's one of the problems is that uh, then the, the, the problem never gets addressed and it gets worse and worse. And so, yeah, we need to know more about the human body and how it reacts to silicone uh, and why these uh, exceptions to the rule, these people who um, are, are reacting differently, why it happens. And then it would be, well, how can we predict? And, and you know, those are all very good questions that we need to answer So, Dr. Craigie, that's a great point that you brought up about other options, right? Yeah. Like, that's important for women to know that there are other options. So, in my case, I remember my plastic surgeon when I insisted that it was from my implants. Um, he he had felt, he his comment was to me was, well, if it makes you psychologically feel better to take them out, that's important. Um, I'm willing to do that, but the only way you're really going to know is if we don't put anything back in you. I mean, and, and I remember sitting there stunned and I like thinking, well, that's not an option. Um, and I said that to him, I'm like, are you saying that I would have to be flat chested? And he said, well, yeah, that's really the only way to know because saline has a silicone shell. And if I put saline in you, and if you really claim you are, this is from the silicone, it's not gonna solve the problem. <laughs> But he didn't give me any other option. <laughs> so I was not a woman. And, and this is something now that I'm, I'm, we're going to bring up going flat. I was not a woman. And I know there are women out there that they want that as an option. Um, and I've heard in that community that women who want to go flat, some of those aren't even being told that that's an option. Um, so in my case, it was the opposite. In my case, it was like, that's your option. That's your only, you know, that's your only option, really. If, as far as being told there are right. options, if there are options, right? I mean, if a woman has had breast implant reconstruction, just like me, she could still have the option to be referred to a place who could do an autologous flap reconstruction, even if she's a thinner woman and doesn't have a whole lot of body fat. Correct. Number one, like, I know that's true, right? You agree with that. Number two if a woman chooses to go flat, can you talk about that a little bit? I'm sure there's 
probably differences in that as far as the outcome. I do know that some women um, have chosen that. Now, I support that. If a woman chooses that, knowing that she, all her options, including autologous flap using only fat, if she, if she makes that choice, knowing all her options, then that means she's empowered and she's going to feel good about herself because she, it was her choice. If she makes that choice because she didn't know she had other options. Right. And that, that's, that's where story. the, you know, the surgeon should step in and, and be informed and, and, and think about what options are out there and be willing to refer someone. Um, if it's someone who is having a problem with implants after breast reconstruction, it's one thing because uh, many people going through that have dealt with, well, first of all, I need a mastectomy um, and you, I could have a mastectomy and just remove my breast. Uh, and usually the, uh, the, the thought is, well, I don't want to do that. And so they, they look into the options for breast reconstruction. So not all women who have mastectomies uh, have a breast reconstruction. They, they may feel like, well, there's lots of reasons for that, but uh, they may be, uh, have already considered that alternative. Certainly when you go through uh, and decide what to do, uh, we, we talk about, well, this might work or it might fail. And one of the options for plan B may be, well, well not having breast reconstruction. So when you're having a mastectomy or decided to have a mastectomy, you've already kind of dealt with that subject. Um, when uh, you've had a cosmetic procedure uh, with breast implants, it's important in the way we think about things is we want uh, to, if someone's going through a cosmetic procedure and it's for breast enhancement with an implant, well, there's a reason why we don't want to put a huge implant in. Uh, we want someone to get the result they desire, but if they desire something that would set them up for problems down the road, uh, and if those problems uh, develop and they're not um, uh, solved and someone operates and just makes the problem worse, eventually, uh, you, you're in a situation where there's nothing there uh, and taking out the implants is, is a much worse alternative. But for a cosmetic person, uh, there, uh, there's no, there aren't, uh, um, it's cost prohibitive to go and use your own tissue potentially. And so it's important to, mm. uh, you know, that the surgeon is thinking about that before they do the original operation because they, they know that uh, a bad outcome potentially could be something that is, is very difficult to fix, uh, different than someone who's going through mastectomy. Obviously, uh, if someone wants reconstruction, they don't want to have to eventually be flat chest and have nothing, but at least you know, they, they, they've considered that, that, that topic. And so uh, if the option of taking out implants is what is uh, best for someone, then you know, they should ask their surgeon if they say there aren't alternatives. Well, then that's when when uh, you should look elsewhere, because there's plenty of information out there. There are lots of us that deal with implant issues and 20 you percent know, of, of all my patients have um, started out with implants uh, and they failed and we replaced them with their own tissue. And I always see people who are, have been told, well, you don't have enough of your own tissue. Uh, you can't have that or. I wouldn't have my wife go through this or that. And so when you're told that, it's best to ask the question to somebody who does it a lot uh, and, and, you know, to, to, for, for the ultimate opinion. Do you think that 
Um, as far as percentage of doctors, and this maybe this is con- sure. this is probably contributing to why this happens so often, right? I mean, I'm I'm guessing there aren't a lot of doctors, at least from what I've looked. But I'm I mean I'm not a plastic surgeon, so I don't know for sure. But from what I could find on the internet, it doesn't seem that there are a lot of them that that it even or at least advertise, you know, on their website that they can do these other autologous flap reconstructive surgeries. Do you, would you guess, like, what do you think? Uh, There are many, many plastic surgeons, probably 1% of all plastic surgeons do microsurgery regularly in their practice. And probably about 1% of them uh, focus on and specialize in what we call muscle sparing, uh, uh, muscle sparing natural tissue breast reconstruction. So it's a, it is a very small percent, and there's lots of different reasons. It's probably not within the scope of our talk today, but um, you know it, it's it requires a lot of training. So it's it's not available widely, but and that's why the people who do this uh, it's and it's the same with other specialties in medicine. Uh, Things become very specialized, and so there are places where they're available, and people, you know, seek them out. Unfortunately, it's not available everywhere, and so people have to travel. So, yeah, you're, I commend you for for all the excellent research that you did, uh, and it takes a lot of determination and, and a lot of questioning and, and looking. But I think that's what people have to do. Uh, the more more people like yourself that do that, uh, the more information will be available. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just keep moving forward. And it also is great to know that, Dr. Craigie, because it also provides an understanding for women sure. um, of why they're not being right. told oftentimes, maybe. Right. Like, I mean, is it safe to say that it could be that some plastic surgeons just are unaware of these options. I mean, I'm sure some of them are aware and they just don't refer out like my case. That was my case because they finally did refer me to a doctor when I got the results of my test back that showed I had the allergies. Um, but I'm guessing if it is so specialized, could it be possible that some plastic surgeons just aren't aware? And so there's lots of differences in you know, where you're trained and what you see other people do. And so that's part of the training. Your training is uh, you get exposed to other people who do things and you see how they do how they do certain things and you see the results and that's how you realize that there are options and there are different ways to do things and so you know if you don't have that in the back your background yet you do breast reconstruction with implants and that's it you may uh, develop your own bias against alternatives uh, and so that, that that can happen and you know it can mm can happen and so um you know, there are a lot of obstacles uh, to getting information out it's 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 on on us to share information uh it's also um you know uh, uh, patients do an excellent job of of, of uh, learning their options and asking the questions and that pushes us uh to 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 be to provide more options and and so it, it does take time uh, uh and yeah the, the, they're Certainly, you would expect a, a specialist to, to know that, that what all the options are. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, well, thank goodness there's a community of women now that are 
trying to support right. each other. Um, if women will just get on and be curious and look, I know I, I, I do want to talk and I know we're, we're, I'm taking more of your time than I had thought, but I, um, I wanted to have you mention um, another thing that most women don't know about, and that's the exciting new resensation clinical trial um, that I was blessed to be able to participate in. Um, and I'm just so thrilled that I was able to do that. And not only did you save my health, but I um, have so much uh, nerve sensation now. Um, and I didn't have any with the implants. And I just, I want other women to know about it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm finding out that most women don't. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, um, what are your findings so far? Are there plans to expand the trial? Um, part of what's, what's breast reconstruction, an important part of that, what gets removed with, with mastectomy is, are the nerves that go to the breast. And so as plastic surgeons, over time, we, we, we have gotten better and better at rebuilding the, the shape of the breast and uh, the form of the breast. Uh, but not a lot of attention or uh, really has been directed toward also restoring another very important part, and that's the sensation. And because we do microsurgery, that allows us to uh, restore the individual aspects of that part of the body. And so when we, uh, if we take muscles, then that's causing a problem. We don't want to also cause problems by taking nerves. So, but when we take just what we need, uh, the blood vessels and the fat, uh, we can also take sensory nerves. And so as we've gotten better at connecting blood vessels, we can also restore nerves. And so nerves are a little different. When you reconnect them and put them back together, they have to regrow. They don't, uh, like a blood vessel, you connect them and they immediately function. Blood starts flowing through them. But with uh, the nerve uh, reconstruction, it takes time. Uh, and so there are challenges technically for restoring the, the, the nerves because you want the blood supply to work uh, and that to be successful. Uh, if you use your natural tissue, some nerves can regenerate just from that tissue and restore some sensation. But essentially what our trial is, to give you the quick summary, we are re reconnecting the sensory nerves that were going to the breast uh, to the tissue that we're using to make a breast. Uh, the reason that we need a nerve graft is that the nerves don't reach. And so it's kind of like an extension cord. And so it's a very meticulous process then to uh, uh, perform the nerve reconstruction and then to evaluate the end results. And so that's why we need big studies like the one we're participating in. Essentially, those are surgeons throughout the country who do have an experience with doing uh, natural tissue breast reconstruction and connecting the blood vessels and also expertise in working with nerves in other parts of the body. And so by using a nerve graft, sometimes we don't need a nerve graft, but essentially by reconnecting the nerves uh, that get divided to the ones that you're, you're, you're bringing up to the chest, what we're finding, the early uh, results suggest, and these are not conclusions, but this is what we uh, have known from other studies as well, that when you do that, you get more sensation uh, and it returns sooner. And so the challenges is there are, if you think of the nerves, it's like a spider web and you're reconnecting those. And so there's oodles of combinations of ways to do it. Uh, and then the results are not, uh, you're not able to determine until about a year and a half. So that requires meticulous follow-up. 
uh, and nerve tests. And, uh, and so that's why that part of breast reconstruction has you know, seemingly lagged behind uh, the, 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 the other part of the breast reconstruction. And so we eventually will complete a study of a thousand uh, different breast reconstructions and different uh, and be able to give you know, more firm conclusions uh, about how to do it the best way uh, and what people can expect with the results. So Dr. Craigie, if a woman is, is that only an option for women who, um, like you said, they have to elect the autologous flap reconstruction where they're only using fat tissue? Well, you could. You know, if you're taking the muscle, that's a whole different problem. So we feel like you shouldn't have to take the muscle. But you can, you can also, if you leave the muscle and you strip right. it of its nerves, the muscle won't work. So you might as well take the muscle. It does, you know, it's, it's, that's a problem. So uh, the, the idea is you just, the nerves are mixed until right. they are going into the tissue. So we just take the sensory nerve. It, but that means the nerve is shorter than the blood, blood supply. Uh, and so you have to make the two connect. And so there are different ways and innovative approaches to, to doing that with the first priority, not causing a problem by taking your own nerve, but then in some way being able to connect the two so that then the natural healing process can restore uh, the, the sensation to the tissue that you've used. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming I remember when you did my consult for that and I really wanted to be in the trial. I was really excited about that. Um, um, and I did not, obviously mine was not immediate. It was, um, removing implants, right. And secondary, um, re, you know, third actually reconstruction. So just so that women out there know, um, right. this is something they can do. Sure. They, it's not something that it's a one time only, right? Like if they, if they only chose, you know, from the beginning, that's the only way they can have it done. It is something that can be done. If, for example, like myself, they're having reaction and they need to have the right. implants out, it's possible to have your done. own tissue and you've had a flap already, then that's the best opportunity. But if you've had breast reconstruction with implants, there's no way to restore the nerves and reconnect them because the implant is not living tissue. So if you go back and have your own tissue, then you can still reconstruct the nerves even later. And so that's important. Oh, so then... So how did that work with me? Because yeah. I had, you know, I had had prior implant, my implants were right. taken out and you were still able to, to do this with me. Some, some women may not have reconstruction right away. So they could have, have that done when they do go through reconstruction, if they use their own tissue. Uh, but if they've had implant reconstruction and you're taking out the implants uh -huh. and you're using natural tissue, then you can have it done then as well. Uh, but, you know, if I've already done a DIEP on someone, but we haven't been able to, we weren't able to, couldn't, it was before the time when we connected the nerves, you can't really go back and, and redo it. Uh, you're dependent on waiting on the, the natural healing process oh, and hoping that, that that restores more. Or uh, the other issue is uh, how the mastectomy is done and can the nerves be preserved more during the mastectomy. So that's a is that that's actually then another benefit Absolutely. in general of having an agalagus flap Absolutely. Um, reconstruction, Absolutely. even if you're not in right. this, you know, clinical trial, right, of resensation. Right. Anyone going through mastectomy needs to realize that the nerves get removed and that 
the, they're likely to have numbness. And so an implant can't restore that. Well, yeah, I was told that. And I, my plastic surgeon, I remember he had a, a fellow, I think, with him training. And when I told him that I, uh, my, I, you know, it was really hard for me to go through breast cancer because I was, uh, I had very sensitive nipple stimulation and, but, but I wasn't told the, you know, once again, I guess because he thought I did, well, he didn't tell me I had a choice. I wasn't told that autologous flap reconstruction would give me more nerve sensation. That I wasn't told. It just naturally, which is, is that, am I understanding you correctly? Is that what you're saying? That if you choose it, that, you will have more nerve sensation? Correct. Uh, resensation can occur even when you don't necessarily connect the nerves because uh, tissue nerves can grow into the new breast tissue and fr- around the side and to the skin. Uh, and also because you're taking nerves with the tissue, that can help. But the big thing is that the nerves can regenerate and there's not an implant in the scar there to block the nerves growing back in. So some of the, the sensation can return depending on how the mastectomy mm. is done and, and you save more skin. Uh, and remove fewer of the branches of the nerve and also then what you make the breast out of. So all those can factor into the process. What we're trying to do is improve it to another level by reconnecting the nerves and uh, directly reestablishing the way the nerves are connected into what. And, and so we, we know that that creates more sensation sooner, uh, but we have to break it down and I'm sorry I can't go into all the surgical details with limited time, but um, that's what we're trying to work out. Uh, and it's taking, you know, it, does, it takes years of uh, doing the surgery and paying close t- attention to results and details. And that's why it's a multi-center trial. So that's why, so that's the difference in the trial is that I didn't right. realize that. So not exactly. even in the trial, you don't always have to insert a nerve graft. You Oh, so that's not typical then. If, if, if someone were to have like what I had done and so, somewhere outside of the trial, is it, it's, they don't normally reconnect the nerves when they're having autologous well, you flap? Know, you know, doing the reconstruction. And then the question is, how do you make the nerves reach? And so if we, the best way to do that would be to take a nerve from another part of I the see. body. Uh, but we don't, want to cause numbness somewhere else. Okay. How, how do you choose that? Uh, and, and so uh, having a right. nerve graft that's what we call an right. allograft that's prepared has been shown to be a good alternative. It's not as good, but it is an alternative. And so that's why we can't promise every person will get great results. And that's why we have to study it. And sometimes we can do the surgery and connect the nerves directly. Sometimes we use a nerve graft but you know, it, it takes a lot of um, planning and detailed work. And so one person's experience is not going to be enough to answer all the questions. Right. How long do you think, I mean, just in your, your medical expertise and knowing how long it takes things once they're in trial to actually become an option for the majority of women, how long do you think that'll take? How- Proved uh, to insurance companies that it worked, so uh, they will approve. Yeah, I think uh, I think in another probably another yes. year we'll have we'll have uh, <laughs> exactly enough answers to have uh, you know things submitted to be published and peer reviewed, 
uh, and then a lot of the questions that really have already been answered will will be, will there'll be a consensus and an agreement uh, by other people, not just the people who do that type of surgery. So yeah, we're getting close. I think it's we've been doing this trial now for over two years. So another year we'll have. I think those details ironed out. And so for the women out there who are just as new to them and they're just learning about this, um, can they still well, right now, participate during, in the trial? During this and, and during, we, we're not enrolling new, new patients in the study, but we're continuing to, to do the procedures. So it's still an option. You don't have to be in the study. So it's something that women can ask about. Uh, and find out information about at the Resensation website. And so it's, it's an option that's still there. You don't have to be a participant in the study to benefit from, from the, the option. That's very good to know um, because I think, and I mean, I know for myself, again, between regaining my physical health and having my health back, which I owe that to you immensely, um, but in addition to regaining my physical health, just regaining the look, you know, looking at myself in the mirror and, you know, fe feeling that I look more natural and, and then the, the icing on the cake, which was probably the top thing was that I could actually feel my reconstructed breast again and, and have feeling and have sensation. And so, um, and I really didn't understand until you're talking to me about this, that even if a woman's not in this trial, um, by choosing autologous flap reconstruction, they'll have more nerve sensation anyway than by choosing breast implant reconstruction. Sure. And so if that's important to them, I would think that would be really important for them to consider, um, you know, in their, in their choices and in, in their options. Um, and I, I just, I'm noticing the time, Dr. Craig, and I, I know you're very busy and I feel very privileged that you were willing to come on my podcast and spend this time um, to talk about this, to help inform and educate other women. Um, and I just wanted to ask you if you had any, um, I don't know, any closing thought that you might want to share with women who <clears throat> might be, you know, in, struggling right now with, you know, um, fear, like, like I talked about, you know, or anything yeah, else people you like share. yourself that are sharing information, uh, people who are willing to share their experience and their outcome. Uh, and and spread that information through the internet, word you know, word of mouth, and, and otherwise, that that pushes things along, that makes the doctors aware of what the potentials are and what questions we should answer. So, uh, thank thank you, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for sharing your experience, so that other women that are going through something similar will realize that there are options. Uh, unfortunately, maybe. The, the medical community, maybe their doctors is not, are not informed or are not getting, uh, giving them all the options. Uh, and when they see someone like yourself out there sharing their experience and, and, and helping them, you know, that is probably the best uh, help that they can get. And, and so I commend you and I appreciate you having me on. And it was a true pleasure having you as a patient. And I'm used to right. have me as a patient. <laughs> Because I have to support the research, right? That's super important to, so that you guys have the data um, to support this so that we can pay it forward for other women in the future so that hopefully this will become an option for all women um, to help them and in their, in their journey to reclaim their, 
their health and their feminine identity and their sense of who they are as a woman. So. I just wanted to say um, in closing, in addition to everything else we talked about as all the, all this information and that women need, um, I just want to um, reaffirm how important it was for me um, in choosing you guys. And so as far as my process, um, you know, uh, I, I did have consults with two other places besides your, you, and um, I, I don't know if I told you this, but I, I decided I was only going to drive or go in person to one, um, to visit one. And so that was, that was a tough call for me to make. Um, but I chose you guys and, and, and based on how that happened, my results from visiting you guys was going to confirm, um, where I thought I should go. And so that when I visited you guys, um, everything, everyone, and I, and this is, this was really what got me through. Um, this whole process was how supportive and really genuinely cared about me from Gail, from everyone who worked in the office, um, Audrey, bless your heart. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart (laughs) because you got the brunt end of my panic emails (laughs) and, and replying to me always immediately to, to help me and, and even in an emergency room, you know, to communicate, and, and that kind of thing. And so even being out of state, I just want to encourage women. It, you can do it. You can travel, and which you probably will have to travel to, to find a surgeon who has the skill set to do this effectively. But it can be done. Even with complications, it can be done. If you choose a place where in your gut and in your soul, you know you are f- supported 100%. And no matter what happens, you'll be able to get through it. And so you guys have done that for me. And um, I'm going to start. I'm going to cry because <laughs> I cry easy now because I'm just so happy that I have my life back. Um, it's overwhelming to me sometimes. So and that's OK, because <laughs> these are tears of happiness. So um, I owe you guys so much. Um for giving me a second chance at life. And um, I just thank you so much. And just thank you. And thank you for all the women out there who, um, who don't know their options either and um, need to need to know so that they can also get their lives back because you shouldn't have to feel like you have to live a miserable life and be sick the rest of your life because well, you've had very, breast cancer. You're very so welcome, Helena. And we want to help people. And thank you for being an excellent patient. Now, I don't know about excellent. Sometimes <laughs> I've been <laughs> demanding patient. But, um, but thank you guys very much. And again, thank you so much for the time you've spent to be on this podcast um, and sharing your wisdom and information. Audrey, um, I want to let you have a chance before I close. If there's any words of wisdom, anything you want to say. We're a team approach here and that we have two male surgeons, but we have a very female-based team. So we're women. We have boobs, too. So, you know, we can relate a little bit. And uh, we just try to be supportive. And one of us is always here in the office. We always answer the phone, answer emails. 
So we try to be different from other practices where you call the office and you get a automated message, things like that. So we just try to be personable and treat every patient like family as best as we can and support you through this long process and get you back to your regular life. And that's really pretty much what you said to me. And I think I honestly shared with you one of the other places I was considering. And and I remember you basically talking to me about how you guys operated and the culture of your practice. And that was exactly the feeling that I had when I was there. Now, of course, you don't know for sure until you start to go through your, you know, working with you guys. But I, I, I sensed that it was true. Um, and, and my... The challenges that I've faced and everything I've been through with my surgeries, um, it's, it is true. And I can't imagine having this done at a place where you didn't feel that. Um, again, I, I thank you so much. So not just for all the skill and everything, but for the culture and the environment that we're not just a member that you know us, you know our name, <laughs> you know when you call, when we call or email with our worries, um, and that's how we're really made to feel. And that emotional uh, support, I think, really helps a lot. Um, I think that emotional support obviously is going to help you heal better. Um, and so, um, thank you for for really for making a, a, a center that really um, does that and supports us like that. Again, thank you for your time and your service and for making, for empowering women, because that's what you do. Yeah, I know you, I, I hope you know this, that you empower women to feel like a woman, uh, to feel like themselves again, um, and to feel their their feminine identity um, and and their sexuality. And, and that is such a gift. Um, that's such a gift. Yes, it is such a gift because our bodies have been our most loyal friend and fierce warrior trying to protect us through our journey as breast cancer sister warriors. So I hope this podcast will help you to be able to reflect. And if you're like me and feel that your experience has had a lot of bad struggles because you weren't given all the information. Remember that the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Armed with information and resources, reach out and explore all your options and connect with a plastic surgeon that can help restore your physical health and your emotional health. Coming up on our next podcast, my therapist will be a guest and we will be discussing the Enneagram. If you don't know about the Enneagram, I encourage you to look it up. It's a very ancient uh, system that evolved from many different traditions. And she is gonna be talking about how the Enneagram 
and understanding different Enneagram types and subtypes and wings and where our type goes to in stress and in rest actually does impact our view of our body and our self-concept in how we handle stress as breast cancer sister warriors. I know for me personally, learning about the Enneagram and finding a therapist that specialized in the Enneagram has been life transformational for my journey in my ability to break through some of my own negative emotions and shame that often I wasn't even fully aware I was carrying around with me. So I hope you will join me for that. And if you have questions, please remember to call in and leave a voicemail message. Um, And I will play those questions on my podcast with her and try to answer as many as possible. So until then, go be your bold, brave, beautiful self.